Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone. We say all the time that the best exercise is the one that you'll do, full stop. Any type of regular movement is a win in my book. But today's guest, Dr. Jamie Seaman, argues that women don't focus enough on building muscle mass. As an OBGYN, she's noticed that too much intense cardio can mess with women's hormonal balance over time, and strength training is crucial for healthy aging. Let me repeat, if you're moving, you're doing great, but the bro-dominated gym culture is quickly changing, and Jamie wishes more women would embrace their strength. She's also a board-certified keto nutrition specialist, so you know we're going to talk about protein and the best foods for hormonal balance. Now to the show. Jamie, welcome. It's so good to be here. Thank you, Jason. So great to have you. As, as I mentioned before we hit record, uh, my wife, my wife Colleen, is a huge fan, and she turned me on to your work. Um, and I think you have a really interesting background. And I think I want to call out that you're also an OBGYN, which I think you're the first we've had on the show. And I think there's a reason for that, which I will segue to later. But welcome. And let's start by talking a bit about your background, your personal health journey, and the work you do, because you actually do practice medicine. Yeah, I am. I'm what I call a boots on the ground physician <laughs> in this battle that we're in. But I am uh, a private practice OBGYN and full-time clinical practice. So in my daily life, I get my girls to school. I deliver babies. I do surgery, deliver babies in the middle of the night. And uh, outside of that, wear a lot of other hats and, and involved in actually some other businesses. But I grew up here in the Midwest, 80s and 90s, and was a you know, three-sport athlete, you know, good in school, went to college, played collegiate softball for the University of Nebraska. And while I was there, I was pursuing a degree in nutrition and exercise science. And I kind of thought, you know, if I don't go to medical school, then I'd love to do something in the nutrition world, the athletics world. I mean, I really, I really loved being an athlete. And after I graduated, my husband and I got married and we went to medical school. And this was the first time in my life that I was suddenly going from exercising all the time. And I won't say that my diet was great, but you know, you're at a college that has nutritionists and you know, they're telling you to eat the rainbow and you know, eat your protein and protein shakes and this and that and the other. So now I'm suddenly going from being very active to being very sedentary. I'm sitting in the library, taking tests on Saturday. And it was the first time in my life that I kind of struggled with my weight. And I also had gone from lifting really heavy weights. I, for people, I don't know if you have video, but there's a trophy behind me. This was one of my lifter of the year trophies from Nebraska. But I also kind of said, you know, as a woman, I hated the fact that I had large quads and I hated, you know, I, I got made fun of actually sometimes for it. And so I just said, I'm never going to lift another weight. So I went to medical school, just started counting calories. I mean, you guys, I was counting goldfish crackers. And then my husband and I wanted to start a family. So I was trying to get healthy before, which I just thought was like, get to a normal weight before I got pregnant. So I got pregnant with my first daughter when I was a third year medical student. And um, she was born during medical school. And then I went on to have two more pregnancies. All my, my three daughters are 23 months apart. So like three pregnancies in 56 months. And pregnancy is such a window to your, what I would call like... <laughs> genetic susceptibilities. And I come from a, a long family history of normal BMI diabetics and I failed my glucose testing. And after um, my daughters were all born, I was diagnosed with prediabetes and hypothyroidism. 
So here I was living as a physician that has a degree in nutrition and exercise science, a medical degree, and I'm living with these preventable medical conditions. And if you looked at me from the outside, I mean, I I know I was not obese. I don't think anybody would have said, oh my gosh, she looks so unhealthy. And I thought, gosh, like if I'm living this way, how many patients are we missing? And so I really started to take more of a special interest in in prevention medicine, essentially. So I went back and did an integrative medicine fellowship looking for just more tools for my toolbox, essentially. And on my own personal journey, I kind of started with a Whole30 diet, then paleo, then I tried ketogenic diet, then I was really kind of like more carnivore. Kind of in this journey, I discovered that medicine is not doing it right. We're not really helping people. And it started to change the way that I practice. And um, I went on to be one of the first physicians in the US to be a board certified ketogenic nutrition specialist, which is kind of a Essentially, when you take care of pregnant people, that's especially a very niche area. You know, there's not a lot of not a lot of randomized control trials on on that in pregnancy. But you know, kind of going through my own health journey, it really turned the lights on for me and started changing just everything in my life. The way that I parent, the way that I you know am as a spouse, it changed how I practice medicine, and I really started going after all sorts of crazy, amazing things in life when I finally had the energy and the capacity to to take those things on. I, I mean, I can't imagine if my, the trajectory of my life hadn't changed, you know, what I would be doing right now. It definitely wouldn't be this. And so it sounds like embracing a ketogenic diet was the diet that, that worked for you and helped alleviate some of the pre-diabetic concerns. Yeah. I mean, so, so I was breastfeeding when I first started whole 30 and what happened when I first started is I'm, I'm certain that there was like a a drop in calories and I actually hit my milk supply a little bit. And so then I got kind of, kind of scared. And so then I kind of went to paleo because they thought, okay, well, you know, kind of open this up a little bit more. Um, but then with paleo, I, I like cheese, <laughs> I like dairy. <laughs> so when I switched to a ketogenic diet, it was just like the first thing that clicked for me. And it would, it was just easy. Like I, I wasn't hungry. I had good satiety. The weight started coming off. Like it was just the first thing that just seemed easy for me. I mean, as somebody who had tried to diet for a really long time and my husband started doing it at the same time and he just did it really in support of a spouse, but his migraines went away, his seasonal allergies went away. Like we just started feeling amazing. And so then when I started looking at the literature, I'm like, well, I don't know, like ketogenic diets kind of controversial in medicine. Like there's just you can find stuff on epilepsy, but that's kind of it. I mean, Steve Volick and and Dr. Finney, I mean, there were some people kind of pioneers in the in the area with some published data on neurologic disorders and things like that. But uh, I, back in 2015, 2016, I, mean, I kind of felt like a black sheep in medicine, kind of like telling patients like, hey, you should try like a low carb diet. Um, but it was, it was the first thing that worked. And I think now, you know, knowing what I know now and knowing how ketones work as cellular signaling molecules and all the other benefits. Like it's just, it's not about weight loss. I mean, the other benefits that you can experience during a period of ketosis, I think that's why it really worked for me. And, um, and now, you know, I've tried, you know, just a low carb diet, you know, even eating up to like 150 carbs a day and kind of trying to find that happy ground for me. But it really, it really was the first thing that just worked and was kind of easy and fit my schedule. And, you know, I could do intermittent fasting. I'm a surgeon, like I don't have time to eat six or seven meals a day. And, um, and I think that's what, you know, people listening, sometimes you just have to be your own expert and figure out what works for you and works for your genetics. And, and cause we're all, we're all built from different pieces. And so zooming back out, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head is most MDs are, don't really focus on nutrition. They don't 
they're not trained in it. They don't have time, unfortunately, to, to talk to a patient about nutrition, although I do think that's changing. And coming back to my statement that we haven't had OBs in this podcast, I'll share a personal story. My wife, Colleen, um, had a pulmonary embolism, and just bear with me on this. So she had a pulmonary embolism in 2012. Turns out she was on the birth control pill. Uh, it was after a flight. Uh, she has the MTHFR gene. Th there were a lot of moments for her that said, wow, I could have maybe prevented this. And no one really knows about the risks here, specifically with birth control pills. Uh, clots were so serious, it, it, she, she could have died. It was a very scary moment for both of us. And, and she's healthy, skinny, like non-smoker, all the things, like very healthy. And it was around the same time Serena Williams had a pulmonary. Serena Williams in that, in that moment of time became like our, our, our North Star for healing. And so fast forward five years later, uh, it was a very long and hard road to get pregnant. Finally get pregnant. A any sort of natural birth, alternative, anything was just not in the cards for us. We went to a high-risk pregnancy doctor because if you are pregnant, you are at risk for clotting. And given my wife's history, we were not, you know, we, we didn't want to compromise the, the life of our unborn child and also my wife's life. And so this guy was amazing. Uh, you know, what, what do you look for in OBGYN? So, someone who's going to take care of your health and ensure you have a, you know, a safe pregnancy and you deliver a healthy, healthy baby. So we delivered on that. And in the process, when Colleen was pregnant, she wasn't eating a lot. And this guy was so lovely. And he says to her, I'll never, we both will never forget. You need to eat more protein. Have some pasta. <laughs> And, and, and to me, without it sums up, I think, the mismatch between a really great high-risk OBGYN on the Upper East Side of, of New York at the time, who, who delivered, you know, he delivered on his task of, and, and delivered our second child as well, second girl, but like such a mismatch with nutrition. And I'm like, you know what? It's bad that most MDs either aren't educated or don't have the time to talk about nutrition, but it's almost even worse with OBs because it's not just... The, the woman, but it's also the unborn child who are affected. So what's your take on why that is? I'm very thankful that my children appear to be very normal because I will tell you right now, during my pregnancies, I, I mean, I was like eating mozzarella sticks and getting half price sonic milkshakes. I mean, I was in the middle of med school and residency, which for anybody that's been through medical training, I mean, it's, and my husband was a police officer working nights. So, I mean, it was a complete circus. Like I was just trying to survive. And you only know what you know, but you know, this, this is something I'm very passionate about now because I have three daughters and what we know about epigenetics and pregnancy, the maternal diet is not just about don't gain too much weight. Don't get gestational diabetes. It's so much more than that. I mean, when you think about the nutrients just required to build a healthy baby, right? Protein and fatty acids are, are the main components of that. Carbohydrates, obviously play a role in our metabolics. But when you think about what's required for a healthy baby, even the Institute of Medicine says with adequate intake of protein and fat, carbs are not essential for human life. <clears throat> with that said, they say 175 grams is kind of the lower cutoff for pregnancy. But 
just the, even the, the, the nutrients, the minerals that are needed for, for, I mean, the physiologic process that's happening with building a human baby is the, is the greatest physical feat that a woman will go through. I mean, more than training for an Ironman, more than anything she'll ever do. It's the greatest metabolic stress on a woman's body, which is kind of why I was alluding to the fact that it can be a window to your susceptibilities later in life. And so I'm so passionate about it because these epigenetic changes can be passed down for generation to generation. So it's not about having that baby be healthy, but you're talking about you're affecting your grandkids, your great grandkids. I mean, we're literally altering, altering the the human genome essentially. And, And these are things that can be passed down. So pregnancy nutrition is very important. You are completely right. OBs are not armed with the tools to, uh, to, to help people in the right way. And, you know, when you look around at just even what, what my own colleagues eat, you know, like I watch them right in the lunchroom, like I watch what they eat and, um, and there are some that, that eat well, but it's because they, you know, like I have no one guy up the hospital, he run he does Ironman. So his diet is like very like dialed in, but, but for the vast majority, they're just like any other American. They're just, you know, they're reading the headlines, eggs cause blood clots. Yeah. What was that? Colon cancer. What, what I, I didn't, it was so <laughs> egregious. I didn't bother digging in. I mean, basically they're saying that because of the choline content of eggs, that it raises TMAO and that it causes blood clots. But I mean, fish raises TMAO too. And it's, it's just, it's, it's so political. The attack on animal foods is so political. And I comment, Joe Rogan had shared it and I commented on his post and I, and I said, this is really disheartening because as you vilify these foods, as you vilify red meat and eggs and things that are so nutrient dense, what it will do, the plant-based diet agenda will push people to eat more processed foods, foods that contain less nutrients. It just will do that. I'm telling you right now, just like your doctor said, like they will turn to the convenient things that don't have nutrients. And it's just scary because it's changing, it's changing our, our lives for generations, not just that individual patient. You know, I think the parallels between nutrition and politics are, are, are a little bit eerie in that extremes play well whether that's the reality of how the majority of the population feels or acts that's what plays well on the internet that's what the algorithms favor so the more extreme point of view you can have and i think it's still a minority but they're not silent and they're loud and then the average person who's sensible doesn't want to get involved in that even though silently they're i mean headlines sell and you know, everybody eats. That's the thing is like everybody eats. And so people who are involved with political agendas, I'm not going after the farmers here. I'm not, but there are, there is so much money to be made in, in crops and in, in all of these things. And so unfortunately, and, and it filters down into medicine. I wrote about this in my book. I mean, you know, when you look at the, um, the bias and, and things in articles that we read in our established journals that that end up guiding evidence-based medicine, there's a lot of politics at play. There just is. And it's it's hard for doctors and it's harder for patients, you know, to figure out what what is right and what is not. And on some level, I get it in that look, a lot of people aren't doing well mentally or physically and they go to a doctor and the doctor doesn't have time for all the reasons why. And they say, you know, here's a prescription or maybe do this. And they just really don't have time. And maybe what they prescribe or tell them doesn't work. So you have someone who's disillusioned, frustrated. Maybe they, they, they don't live near you or 
a Frank Lippman or a functional medicine doctor. They don't have access uh, and maybe they can't afford it. So they go to the internet. Where do they go on the internet? They go to Instagram, they go to TikTok. And then there's all this information and people can be very convincing and algorithms favor extreme points of view. So what are you going to see if you're searching for answers? You're going to see an extreme point of view. And sometimes that works for people. And there are miraculous stories of people embracing something pretty extreme and it works for them. But for the most part, it's dangerous. And I don't know the way out of this and I don't think we're going to solve it here, but I just wanted to point that out. Oh, it's totally true. I'll make a reel that has like really good information about breast cancer, like whatever it is and gets like no views. And then I did this reel recently saying how plant milk and like almond milk was like, was dumb. And it was like a short time. I mean, <laughs> I like made it on a whim and then it's like hundreds of thousands of views and like so many comments and rawr, people were very passionate about their, about their plant milk. So it does like, that's what sells. And, and, um, People got to people got to open their eyes and use their own brains. So I'm curious. Other than the, the beautiful issue of of women becoming pregnant, uh, what other issues are you seeing right now in your in your patients that are maybe a little bit more surprising? Well, you know, people like to attack the ketogenic diet, but the real the real thing is we have an energy crisis. We have a cellular energy crisis, and a lot of it revolves around the fact that most people walking around today. Uh, their mitochondria are not working like they're supposed to efficiently and effectively, right? Because we have mitochondria in almost every cell in our body. There's a few places we don't, like red blood cells. Um, but what I experience on a day-to-day basis, taking care of women from teenagers all the way to you know 80, 90-year-old women, is that um, most of the things that are going to kill you or make your life miserable, which the top three killers are cancer, heart disease, and neurologic diseases, those are all metabolic diseases. So, you know, we have a metabolic crisis. That's what we're facing right now. 88% of our country in the U.S. has a metabolic problem. And we're not fixing it in the right way. We're not going about it in the right way. Um, we politicize nutrition and diet. Uh, we tell people just to do cardio. And and really, they should be doing a lot more weightlifting. Uh, we're like a keep up with the Joneses society. People aren't sleeping well. They're stressed. We have so many industries that have created shift work that has messed up our circadian rhythms. We live inside houses. We're exposed to all these chemicals. I mean, it's it's more than one thing. It's it's tons of little dominoes that are falling. But you know, technology is great. But we've we have created this world, and unfortunately, our health is going to continue to decline. If we, if we can't figure out how to slow it down. And so you mentioned you see women from their teens up until their 80s. If you were to look at women by decade, what are, the, some, of, what are some of the things women who are listening should be thinking of? You know, what should I be thinking of if I'm you know, in my teens versus my 20s, 30s, 40s, and, and so on? Because I'm assuming a lot of things change. Yeah. So my teenage patients, I mean, none of them eat a good diet. Um, it's a world of convenience. I mean, I have seen my own kids, you know, school lunch menus, they're eating talkie chips and drinking Mountain Dew. But when we're in our teens and twenties, we have so much cellular resiliency. Like we can get away with like eating poorly and not sleeping very many hours. And we seem to just bounce back from things. But then what happens is, um, and they might be having problems with their periods or, and most of them, you know, once they become sexually active are looking for contraception. So they might be on birth control and all of these things have their own implications. And 
then when they get into their 20s um, or even into their 30s and they want to start a family is when we really start to uncover a lot of the damage that's been done, right? Um, they're not having normal cycles. They, uh, you know, ha- have all these problems that create infertility. And infertility is a problem. It's growing not just amongst women, but among men too. We're seeing lower sperm counts, lower testosterone levels. So in women in this kind of, you know, 30th decade of their life. But then what happens is they they achieve a pregnancy, you know, most of them that want to can, um, even if it takes some help. And pregnancy is this great physiologic stressor. And then they might go through breastfeeding and they might have, you know, more than one child. And on the other side of, of growing a family, women start to unravel. I mean, I watch it. They, uh, you, if, it's kind of like when the president comes into office and you look at the, the picture when he came into office, when he came out of office. I mean, I think we could do that with women. Like here she was before she had her three kids or like after it's such a depletion of the body. I mean, if you're not eating a good nutrient dense diet, it literally just sucks the life out of you. And then you know how it is when they're little, you're not sleeping, you're not taking care of yourself. You're not the priority. And then when you hit your forties, now you are getting close to perimenopause, which is five to 10 years prior to menopause. And what's happening is that as a woman ages, our ovaries are actually kind of the setting the rhythm of aging. And so as our ovaries uh, start to age, everything in our body ages. And then when the ovaries go through menopause, average age being 51, the United States aging is accelerated. So my menopausal patients are are dealing with this transition of the loss of hormones, loss of estrogen, progesterone, and sometimes testosterone. And now they're starting to uh, increase the risk of all chronic diseases. So cardiovascular disease, diabetes, it's really hard to lose weight. Their brain's getting foggy. So, you know, with each, with each decade, we have definitely new challenges, but it's all related (laughs) to taking care of ourselves and taking care of our mitochondria. So you mentioned hormones specifically around perimenopause. I'm curious, how should we be looking at hormones by decade? All created equal, whether 20 something versus 60 something, and we should just, it's really about that perimenopause moment, or does it differ in terms of how we should be thinking about it? So women are reproductive creatures and our bodies have all these nutrient sensing pathways that are basically saying at any given moment, is this a good time to reproduce? So when we are a teenager, you know, 12, 13 years old or whatever it is, and we start having menstrual cycles, we start having our period, our our ovaries are turning on, they're starting to communicate with the pituitary gland and we start ovulating and we start cycling regularly. So we get this nice cyclic production of these hormones, estrogen, um, testosterone, and progesterone. And as we go through our teens and our twenties, most people aren't trying to have a baby yet. Uh, Sometimes it does happen, but but these hormones are doing amazing things for our body. Estrogen is is helping support our, our lean muscle tissue. It's helping our brain function. It is protecting the endothelium in our vessels and in our heart. It's doing lots of great things. When we hit this perimenopausal transition, meaning that sometimes we're not having regular ovulation, we're not getting good progesterone production from the corpus luteum, we're not making as robust amounts of estrogen, women start to experience the deficiencies of, of those hormones. The, the body doesn't function the same way. And if you don't have all these other things dialed in, it can really, it can really wreak a lot of havoc for patients. I am a huge fan of hormone replacement therapy. And I think we are kind of seeing the pendulum swing a little bit, you know, for the last 20, 30 years, based on some trials that weren't really sound data, it scared a lot of women away from using hormones 
risk of blood clot and stroke, mostly with oral estrogens in obese patients that smoke, um, increased risk of breast cancer in patients using synthetic progestin. So there's a lot of nuance when we talk about hormone replacement therapy, but but women who who benefit the most are within 10 years of menopause. And what it's doing is it's slowing down the aging process. So it's not like giving a patient a statin or an acid reflux medication. Yes, it does make their hot flashes and night sweats go away and it does help them feel better. But what it's doing on a cellular level is it's combating aging. It's slowing down the process of things like osteopenia and osteoporosis. It's slowing down the process of people who develop age-related cognitive decline and dementia. Um, it's helping protect our lean body mass and decrease our risk of cardiovascular disease and diabetes because with the loss of estrogen, we become very insulin resistant. So um, although you experience these different problems at different decades, um, it, it matters at each it matters at each decade, but for different reasons. But if you want to talk about, you know, how do I live, you know, a long life with, with longevity and, and to be able to function like I want to function, hormones are a very important part of that. And most women come in and say, doctor, I think there's something off with my hormones. How do I balance my hormones? You have to take care of, of, of your normal physiologic processes and your hormones will take care of themselves. Now, after menopause, there's no way to turn it back on. But for people who are in their years of fertility if something has gone awry, if you're not getting periods regularly, if they're heavy, if they're painful, if, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever it is, there is something in these pathways that is, that is off. I mean, the, the body is made to reproduce when you take care of it. Are there certain labs that women should demand that their OB do? Yeah, this is a great question because hormone testing is really hard to do with labs <laughs> because women are cycling. So every single day, let's say it's a, an average 28-day cycle, every single day of the cycle, these numbers will look different. So if you're checking labs, you really have to know what part of the cycle you're in. Um, they'll change even during the day, circadian rhythm production of hormones late in the day versus early in the day. They're going to be different. And so that's the the difficulty. You know, You can walk into your doctor and say, check my hemoglobin A1C. I want to know if I have diabetes. Okay, that's an easy test, right? You can say, check my hemoglobin, my hematocrit. I want to know if I'm anemic. Those are easier tests to, to give a diagnosis. But when a woman comes in and feels some sort of hormonal derangement, it's not as easy as just ordering an FSH, LH, estradiol, you know, progesterone, testosterone. It's not, it's not easy just to order that panel and say, oh, here's the problem. Certainly you can see overt problems. Maybe a patient who has early menopause, what we call ovarian insufficiency or diminished ovarian reserve, or maybe she has PCOS, her androgens and her DHEA are off the charts. Sometimes you can see those glaring problems, but a lot of times it's more subtle than that. And so it's, it's hard. And I see I'm in OBGYN groups right on Facebook and they're like, oh my God, if one more 42 year old patient comes in here and says, check my hormones, like I'm going to pull my eyelashes out because they understand as a physician, it's really hard. It's not like a one-time test. And there's so many different inputs and outputs for the, for the system. It's, it's hard to do that. So with regards to hormones and some of the issues you're seeing, I think there's the obvious, you know, we've talked about environmental factors that are messing with our hormones. Are there less obvious, a little bit more sneaky factors that are messing with women's hormones? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I would say the sneaky ones are probably um, things that we don't think about, like plastics. Uh, plastics are a big one, and it's like, oh yeah, I'm using a stainless steel water bottle, right? But um, it's 
thermal receipt paper. It's the the things that they wrap our food in when we when we get food from places. Um, they use plasticizers in everything, cosmetics, things. I mean, women put on average, I don't remember what it is now, but it's like 15 to 20 things a day. I think those would be kind of things that women don't think about just in our modern industrial world um, that really can cause a lot of endocrine disruption. For instance, um, there's atrazine. Uh, If you give atrazine to rats, it causes endometriosis. I was just reading an article the other day about fibroids. There's a specific plasticizer um, that 100% of the time creates fibroids and makes fibroids grow in the uterus. So I I do think that there is, this is very subtle things. They're just, they're things that we just interact with on a daily basis that we don't think about. And when you do think about it, it's kind of terrifying because you're like, oh my God, put me in a bubble. Like what the heck? But I think those would be the less obvious things. I mean, I think people think about diet and exercise and sleep a lot, but I think those things are a lot more sneaky. So closing the loop on on diet, and this also segues to exercise, another hot topic these days is protein consumption. How do you think about protein consumption? And does that vary? By, by decade as we age, do our protein needs change? So in a general sense, going from being a young woman to being, let's say, grandma, we become less efficient at protein utilization. Uh, or I guess how I'll put it is that the amount of protein as we age that's required to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, um, that threshold is, is steeper, meaning grandma needs more protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis than 20-year-old granddaughter does. Now, when we look at the recommended dietary allowance of protein, it's really low, in my opinion. And it's it's set at a threshold that prevents deficiency in like 97% of the population. So even at that threshold, about 3% of people are deficient. But when you look at the data, like the NHANES is probably the biggest data set that we have of, of kind of looking at like, what do people consume? Um, there is a large, like almost half of those women were not even meeting the RDA. (laughs) So I think the RDA is set low and then half these women are not even getting the RDA. That's a problem. And the reason it's a problem is because when we think about these macronutrients, we always talk about them as like percentage of calories, but I don't think protein should be that way. I think there should be a a, a gram threshold that everybody should be shooting for. And uh, for women, I think it really should be about 90 grams, like 30 grams three times a day. And when I work with patients individually in clinic, this is this is hard. Protein is one of those macronutrients that you really have to make a valiant effort to find. You can find carbs and fat really easily. They're everywhere, especially in combination, right? That's all like Pop-Tarts, donuts, like those are all combinations of fat and carbs and really low in protein. And that's what a lot of our processed foods are. Um, but it's easy to find fat. You know, you can add some olive oil here. It's easy to find carbs. You know, you can have some fruit or some rice or whatever it is. But protein is one of those things that you really have to make an effort to get into each meal. And most women are eating sub-threshold amounts of protein. So they're getting 10 grams here, 15 grams here, 10 grams here. And they're never getting a good anabolic response from, from the ingestion of the protein. And what most women, right, they're struggling with their weight and their body composition. And it's been shown in the literature, even eating excess calories, as long as all those excess calories are protein, women have more muscle and less fat. So if there's a woman listening, that's like, God, I just, there's this 10 pounds I really want to lose. The fastest way to lose fat is to gain muscle. And women aren't gaining muscle because they're not eating protein and they're doing a bunch of cardio. And then, you know, you mentioned protein being difficult. 
protein, it's not about protein in, in and of itself without, you also need leucine. And you have to be mindful of the leucine content to stimulate. You need that two and a half grams to stimulate as you age. And that's why I use 30 grams because you're probably, I mean, if you're eating cottage cheese, yes, you are. But, you know, if you're eating certain animal proteins, you are. But, but yeah, you're totally right. I mean, if you, if you compare animal proteins and plant proteins, there's definitely some that are better than others. And then it becomes an emotional and often political issue protein. And, and this one is pretty simple, I think. It's hard to argue. I, I mean, it, it's... If you want to age successfully, uh, you need to focus on muscle. It is a great disposal agent for carbohydrates. So if you if you're a pre-diabetic like me and you like eating carbs, you should get a lot of muscle. Um, it protects you against almost everything. If you get sick in the hospital and you get COVID and you get bedridden, um, it will protect you. If you get cancer, having extra muscle will be protective. If you get in a car accident and break your femur. If you, I mean, it's, it is, it is protective against dying, having more muscle. And, um, you know, as we age, we think about grandma falling and breaking a hip after the age of 65. If you break a hip, your risk of mortality is, is sky high. And the reason that, that, um, most people think of muscle as an aesthetic thing, but it's not. I mean, it's, it's an, it's an endocrine organ. It literally secretes chemicals that talk to your brain and talk to your heart and and talk to all these things. And as we age, we lose it. We lose not only the muscle tissue at an accelerated rate, but we lose the strength and power in that muscle at an even more accelerated rate. Um, we lose our fast twitch muscle fibers. So there's definitely ways to combat this, but um, it's not just about looking like the chick on the cover of women's health. I mean, it's, it, it is a, it's a metabolic thing. And, you know, you mentioned the falling and breaking a hip. I've, I've, I'll repeat the stat. Uh, it's one out of four people over the age of 65 fall. If you fall once, you are twice as likely to fall again. So, okay, one out of four fall, then fall again, fall, likely to fall again. If you fall and break your hip, 30 to 40% chance dying within a year. That's insane if you think about it. Yeah, and there was <clears throat> there was a study recently. Now they took 20-some-year-old males, so they were like, I don't know, 23 years old, and they made them bedridden for one week because this is what happens. If you break your hip and you're you're laying in bed, right, you become bedridden. This is why they die. So these 20-some-year-old males, they put them in a bed and they said, you can't move. We're going to feed you, but you are going to lay right here for one week. On average, those 20-something-year-old uh, males lost like 12 pounds of muscle by just laying in bed for, for a week, they extrapolated the data out. And for people over the age 65, if they were to do this exact same thing, they would lose like, it was like 12 kilograms of muscle, which is what, like 24 <laughs> pounds of muscle. I mean, they would melt away. They would be sarcopenic in one week by being bedridden because they broke their hip. And that's why they're probably going to fall again. And they're probably going to die in the next five years. And then also, too, as you know, working in hospitals, hospitals save lives, but that's where also people get infections. That's where people go to die. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a, I, I listen my my 95-year-old great aunt who recently passed away, she made it like all through COVID without getting COVID and then was in the hospital for a heart issue. And where does she get COVID? She gets COVID in the hospital. Uh, it actually didn't kill her. She made it through COVID. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I want to come back. You mentioned something, you know, I think, I think is important, um, you know, in the sense of body composition, one way to measure how one is doing is, is a DEXA scan. Um, 
when should we do them? Is that something you should start doing in your 20s, 30s, 40s? Like, what's what's your take on? Because that that's how you assess body comp. I'm a little biased because I actually own a facility here in Omaha, Nebraska that has a body composition DEXA scanner. Um, but I we we put it there on purpose because you know we as a physician we're just like wait 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 on the scale BMI wait BMI and, and patients are too because they have a scale in their bathroom and they weigh their weigh themselves. The conversation around body composition is so important because if you lose 10 pounds, I want you to lose 10 pounds of fat. I don't want you losing muscle. And on average, most people in a caloric deficit are going to lose some muscle. Um, there are some people that could maintain it. Um, they're usually people who are, are real obese and who are starting a resistance training. They're, in, they're a newly trained you know, kind of athlete those people sometimes can protect it or you can protect it if you're eating a higher percentage of protein, even in a caloric deficit. But the conversation of body composition is so important because most of America isn't not, not only over fat, they're under muscled. They don't have enough lean body mass. And as physicians we never think in this through this lens of like looking at a patient saying, well, dang, she's under muscled, you know, Cynthia just needs uh, more muscle in her body. And a lot of these problems would get better. We never think of it that way because we're just we just talk about fat and we just talk about about BMI, um, and and most women are averse to things like resistance training because uh, first of all they just don't have the knowledge. Uh, the gym is really intimidating. There's so many barriers for women to, for for doing resistance training, but if you only have 30 minutes to spend in the gym, you'd be better off doing that. And so I, I'm a huge fan of DEXAs. I think you should get them. Uh, yearly even, you know, uh, the radiation exposure with DEXA is extremely low. Um, there's other modalities like you can use bioelectrical impedance. There's a lot uh, less accuracy with that, especially with, with women who are menstruating just because of the different fluid shifts that happen with progesterone and estrogen and things like that. So if you use something like bioelectrical impedance, you should try to keep the variables so so same, like you know, like tested on the first day of the menstrual cycle each time, uh, same time of day. You know, if you're fasted, try to keep those variables equated. But I'm a huge fan of DEXA, and I think it gives you not only information about your fat mass and your lean body mass, but it tells you about your visceral fat, and that's the fat that's deep down inside your organs, and. It's been eye-opening for patients. I've had patients come in with a normal BMI. We put them in the DEXA scanner and I'm like, do you see this in here? These little little yellow light-up areas around all your organs, this is visceral fat and this is going to kill you. And it's very tied to bad diets, alcohol use, feeding sedentary. Um, and it's a that's a silent killer too that people don't realize. And I have some really cool slides that I've used in presentations before showing patients with waist circumference. These two patients have the same waist circumference but it was an it was an MRI, and one of them had tons of visceral fat, and the other one didn't. And then I showed two patients that had the same body fat percentage. Both patients had the same body fat percentage, and one had tons of visceral fat, and the other one didn't. So although we use these proxies like BMI, waist circumference, healthy body fat percentage, it's not telling the whole story, and that's why I love DEXA. It is, and and you know BMI to me is just so antiquated. And I'll, I'll use the example of me. I'm six foot seven and I didn't do a DEXA, but I did the, the gym I go to here in Miami anatomy, which, which is fantastic. Has one of those machines. You put your, I forget what it's called. Your, your, it's your, so it's arm. an in body or a second. Ex exactly. A, yeah. It's an in body. So my, my body fat is like in, in the 9% ish. My BMI is like 23. 
or 25. And it's just like, and it's insane. And- but with muscle, it tells you you're too big. And for people who are obese, it actually underestimates, it actually underestimates how fat they really are. And the personal trainer I work out with, who is a professional bodybuilder, his BMI was like 30. And th- like, there's just no, and, and I'm just thinking, look, we want people to, to be the healthiest version of themselves. And this thing over here is just so antiquated. We really need to 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 get rid of it. But move, moving on, you know, something you mentioned, you know, the gym can be intimidating for women. You mentioned at one point in your life you were ashamed of having quads. And my take is culturally, it feels like this is changing with women in a way that's positive. What's your take? I hope so. I'm leading the charge. I um, had been made fun of so many times for having, I, I genetically have large quads, but I've been, I've been a weightlifter most of my life being an athlete. And um, I hated it because I was sold in all Cosmopolitan magazine. And I mean, we didn't have social media back then, but right. Cosmo was like the only social media we had, but I was sold this bill of like men want skinny, feminine, quiet, delicate women. And when you try to live within this, this box and you, you know, deep down inside, that's just like not who you are, um, that creates a lot of internal struggle. So, you know, I left Nebraska. I was like, I'm not going to weightlift anymore. I did go through a little stint with like P90X when I was in medical school (laughs) who didn't. And, um, but then when I came out on the other side of this and I was like, oh, I have prediabetes and this and this and this, I was doing um, bar classes, like, you know, kind of like Pilates bar or whatever, because I was postpartum and it was other women and it was comfortable for me and it was social and it wasn't too hard on my body, you know? And then I was like, what am I doing? Like, I have to start lifting weights again. And I remember the first day I walked into this gym and it was like a, like a, like a hit train, you know, like weights a couple days a week. And then these like high intensity interval thingies and you wear a heart rate monitor and like all the things. Um, but I knew I needed it. And, um, now I really am very unapologetic about the body that I have. I think that strength is human. It's not male or female, masculine, feminine, you know, and, for women who are listening right now that are like, oh, I don't want to lift weights because I don't want to look bulky or whatever. I'm telling you, you have to work really, really hard and have a certain genetic potential. Most of the women that you've seen on Instagram or whatever it is that you're like, well, I don't want to look like that. They're probably taking performance enhancing drugs. I mean, I have been through a bodybuilding competition. I, And when you look at me, I've, I competed in a league that allows these things. I, I don't use them. But when you look at me next to somebody that does, it's like night and day difference. So, but I'll tell you that, that women would be a lot happier with their bodies if they did these things. And like I said, muscle is not aesthetic. It is a metabolic organ. It's also good for your bones. Women, you know, osteopenia, osteoporosis, that is living, you know, breathing tissue, your bones are. And I just wish women would embrace this you know, more. And I do, I think we're kind of, we're kind of seeing a trend, but what I'm saying is if you only have 30 minutes in the gym, get off of the elliptical or the, you know, like whatever it is, if you lift weights the right way, it's a pretty dang good cardiovascular workout. What's also interesting is the science around longevity and resistance training 
is is indisputable if you ask me it's it's, it's extraordinarily compelling and Traditionally, in the more holistic space, I think many many women were, you know, practicing yoga, Pilates, bar, um, and in the push with resistance training, and this notion that hey, maybe the yoga, Pilates, bar isn't enough if you're looking to build muscle for the purposes of longevity or aesthetics or what have you. I found is there's been a huge uproar in that uh, my take is people feel threatened by it. it it's not like you know anyone's looking to take down yoga pilates or bar or, or what or cardio it's just hey if it's probably not enough if you're really serious about building muscle you, it's probably not enough you probably have to strength train and it's unfortunate because you know women need to support women we don't need to support each other but like, in, and it feels more of like, you know, women taking down women, then it becomes a conversation around, to your point, like values or, and, and aesthetics around body. And I'll just pause there. What, what's your take on that? Have you seen that on social media? I certainly have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here's the thing is um, our bodies were designed to do physically difficult things, even women. It's, it's like a total misconception that men are stronger than women. We have the same, the same capacity for strength. But when you think about weightlifting, right, it's like it's hot, it's sweaty, there's yelling, it's like, ah, right? I think it's just when women see that, there's like this level of discomfort, like they don't want to go there. And that's like, because I said, women are given this like, you want to be feminine, you want to, like, it's just, it's, it's the story that we're just like told over and over and over and over again. And we just need more women leaders to, to, to be out there with other women. And I've seen that like in our own community, there's, um, there's like weight uh, training groups, like just for women. There's like this place in Omaha where it's like, it's a women only strength and conditioning kind of, you know, deal or whatever. And, and I think that's great. I think that, you know, we need, we need that women need that social connection. We humans alone die in isolation, but I think for somebody listening that wants to kind of, you know, put their foot in there and, and try to attempt this, you know, find, find a, a strong woman in your life that inspires you and, and hang out with her and be with her. Because I think that you discover so many things. Once I got back into the gym and started weightlifting, um, it's really, it's really invigorating when, when you prove to yourself, like how physically strong you really are in your capacity. Agreed. Agreed. And I, I think community is so critical and it feels like this is another example of, look, we got enough problems in this country, you know, obesity is at 40% <laughs> and climbing, um, 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy. And then here we are, this small group of people who are passionate about health and wellness fighting amongst ourselves around what do you what do you mean i have to resistance train what i'm doing isn't enough that's that's complete garbage you didn't cold plunge right <laughs> yeah and it's just and it's just kind of silly so if i'm an outsider looking in and i'm trying to you know get it together and i'm looking at looking at us it's like oh i'm gonna listen to these people look at they're all silly and, and so what what do you think you know, you mentioned resistance training being one of them. What what are, what are other things you wish we took more seriously in terms of practices or modalities with regards to our health? I think the one thing that we haven't talked about is 
you know, we've talked about, we have a physical metabolic problem. I think we have a big mental health problem and mental health is, um, I just want to give a shout out to Chris Palmer. He just wrote a book this year called brain energy and it is kind of a, it's great. We had him on the show too. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a thought that hasn't been talked about, you know, is mental health a metabolic disease? And, and I agree with Chris on so many things. And when it comes to mental health though, right, it's okay. Maybe it's a metabolic disease and it's about, cause we know exercise improves mental health problems. We know, like we've known that some of these things do, but I think that for women listening out there, you know, you have to carve out parts of your day to nurture your mental health, your parasympathetic nervous system. I think these are things that people miss too, you know, like breath work. I'm such a huge fan of it. And I teach patients this in my own clinic all the time because it's something that's free. You can do it absolutely anywhere. You can do it in your car. You can go in a bathroom stall. You can figuring out how to be resilient to the stressors in your life because they're going to happen, right? We just, it's, you're going to, your boss is going to yell at you. You're going to have a bad day with your kids. You have to figure out techniques in your life that make you more resilient. And I'm such a huge fan of things like breath work and incorporating that into just your daily rituals can make you just a more resilient woman, a more resilient man. And, um, and these are things that, that you don't see a lot in your Instagram feed, right? (laughs) But I just love what Chris is doing. And I think mental health is, is a huge problem in America and, um, it's not going to go away quickly. Oh, it's not, it's, it's beyond scary. And you know, on a couple levels. One, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week about how violence among kids has skyrocketed since COVID. And the the thesis was it was attributed to the mental health breakdown because kids were isolated, kids were out of school. Social isolation. Yes, exactly. Especially in inner cities, low income, the parents couldn't work around it. The parents were working themselves. And it's in some in some inner city areas, it, it's kids killing kids, and it is beyond scary because I think this is potentially early days of what we're what we're seeing. And so I think about that, our children. Oh my God, what have we done? Um, and then, you know, I'll, I'll segue to to medication, pharmaceuticals, and, and look, they save lives. SSRIs save lives, but it is a fact that thirty three percent of people who go on SSRIs they, they don't work. And if you think about that, anyone who's ever been depressed, it's terrible. And for some people, you know, it's debilitating and it's also catastrophic. And if you're depressed and you go on a medication, you're like, okay, this thing's going to help me. And people who take the medication and doesn't work fall into even a deeper despair. And so you got 33% and I I don't even remember what the number is, tens of millions of people who are in a place that's not good. And what we also know is that exercise can be extraordinarily meaningful to people. And yet we're not talking about that or metabolic dysfunction. And we've got a crisis here. And even if it can't help everyone, if it can help 33% of the people who this doesn't work for, just think about the impact. Well, we're such a dopamine society. And when you talk about serotonin, I'm not a psychiatrist, you guys. (laughs) I'm a gynecologist. But serotonin is um, a social security uh, neurotransmitter. Serotonin tells me, uh, my tribe is safe. I'm not being exiled. And 
and we have lost touch with human connection. We've like, I mean, I love that we're on this computer right now and doing this podcast and people can listen to this all over the world. It's so amazing. But we have lost our basic communication skills with other humans. We have lost the ability to have deep, meaningful human connection. And, um, and that hurts our serotonin. And then you think of oxytocin. Everybody thinks that in the OBGYN world, because it's what causes uterine contractions and, and helps you have a baby. But oxytocin is also a social bonding hormone. Um, it's, it's what gives us that, you know, tingly feeling when we hug our partner. Um, we get it from hugging our kids. We, but we, we get it a lot through touch, but we do get it through orgasm and, and, and things like that too. Um, but I think this is, this is also the solution, you know, is, is, is fixing the metabolic crisis, but starting to allow our bodies to work how they're supposed to. I mean, we're just, we're just a wreck. In terms of being a wreck, as I looked at my aura score this morning uh, and seeing a low score due to a, uh, a disturbance with one of my young children, I couldn't help but think of you when you said, you know, you're, you're delivering babies all during all sorts of time. One of the other things that we remember from when we were giving birth is our OBGYN like didn't run on sleep. And he was like, we're like, how do you do this? And you do the same thing. You're delivering when a kid, when a baby's ready to go, you got to go. And then you mentioned your husband doing shift work as a police officer. How the hell did you get it to keep it together with your circadian rhythm? And how do you, you, you know, all of these things that can, can, can go wrong. How do you manage I'm sure it's taking some years off my life. I would love to live to be over a hundred, but, but what I have signed up for may, may make that really hard. Like last week I had a really bad week. I had like four babies, like almost like bam, 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 like four nights in a row that were all born between like 11 PM, 1 AM, you know, 3 AM or whatever. But I'll tell you, if I didn't do the foundational things I do, eat well, exercise regularly, I, I don't drink alcohol anymore. I gave it up back October 1st and probably, honestly, I don't know, for the rest of my life. Um, when I don't get good sleep, um, I try to make up for that. So I try to go to bed an hour earlier the next night or, you know, or whatever it is. Um, I do breath work. I do other hormetic stressors. I try to sauna. I try to ice bath. I mean, I try to fit these things in and you know, we only have 24 hours in a day, but I prioritize taking care of myself mentally, physically, spiritually, so that I can take care of other people. I mean, you cannot fill other people's cup if your pitcher's empty. And I would never be able to recover like I do had I not been taking care of myself the way I have been the last couple of years. But that's what's important to me. You know, I have prioritized that in my life and it, and it does take that priority. You know, I kind of say like, I come before my kids. I see a lot of moms who it's like, they do everything for everybody in their world. And they feel like it's really selfish to say, no, I'm going to the gym for 45 minutes or whatever it is. But I understand that if you don't pay yourself first, nobody else in your life benefits from that. You don't and they don't. So I put myself above everything else, my mental health, my physical health, my spiritual health. And that is what allows all these other relationships and my career and all these things to flourish. Do you have any go-to hacks when you just have one of those days where you know you haven't slept, but you have to, you have to go, you have to go deliver, you have to go do that thing. Yeah. So you can, so I'm a huge fan of like blue blockers. So like your most important sleep is basically from like 10 PM to 2 AM. So when, when I get woken up for like a 1 AM delivery, I know I'm like, okay, this is going to be like an uphill battle. So I'll try to wear blue blockers if I can. Um, and then, um, 
diet, my satiety goes nuts the next day. Like I'm like, I'm looking for the fast food. I'm looking for like, and I, and I know it, but I combat that. So and what better place to look than in a hospital where it's so readily available, which is another right? discussion. So, you know, I'll use other things like uh, nootropics or uh, exogenous ketones or things just help me kind of muddle through that day to give me some brain energy, right? Because you're going into an energy crisis. Your cortisol is going crazy. Um, I'll do some extra deep breathing exercises. And then that night I try to go to bed an hour or two earlier to try to kind of make up that sleep debt. And so, um, you just have to kind of like, you know, you know, know, there definitely are these little hacks, but, and I get messages all the time from people who do shift work. And my husband used to work nights for like almost 10 years as a police officer. And I could see it just like physically, like it was wearing on him so badly. Um, and we know that people who, who work nights and do shift work have like increased rates of cardiovascular disease and cancers. I mean, it's just, it's just a hard fact. And when we live in a world where, places are open at night, hospitals are open at night and gas stations. And God bless these people that, that work, you know, these shifts, but it is a, it is a huge toll on your body. And, um, my husband doesn't work nights anymore and, oh my gosh, he's like a different human now, but, um, there are people out there (laughs) making these sacrifices for all of us. Yes. Yes. In terms, you know, you mentioned the the blue blockers. I don't know if that, I would put that in the, the cutting edge category, but I think it's on trend. More people are becoming aware of blue blockers and the benefits. Are there any other things that stick out to you that are a little bit more forward thinking, a little bit more, you know, quote unquote out there that you think are interesting? I mean, I'm always in like, <laughs> I'm a science nerd. Like I like to experiment, right? And I always say like, I'll never ask my patients to do something that I'm not willing to do myself. My, my coach used to say that, and I appreciate that line. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, walk the walk, you know? Um, I'm trying to think if there's any, like, super secret hacks. I mean, I, I've, I'm i starting to dive into the world of, like, methylene blue and, like, a, a lot more, like, nootropic types, type stuff. Um, you know, how can I get my brain to function better and learn more information and retain it and perform and... Um, I don't know. I've tried a lot of different things, but I don't know if I have any great ones for people. I think you, I think you have to do the foundational things like, cause so many people you get on Instagram and people are in the weeds of like biohacking stuff. And it's like, dude, if you, if you can't do these like five foundational things, like don't even try the other stuff. On that note of, of all the things of all the information, all the practices, hacks, et cetera, what do you think is underrated? And what do you think is overrated? Mm, that's a good one. I always place nutrition number one only because it's what we do multiple times a day, right? I think fasting is probably overrated right now out there. It, it is a stressor on the body. So, you know, we have to remember that. I think it's being overdone. I think that's an overrated overrated one right now. When it comes to exercise, cardio is overrated and resistance training is underrated. When it comes to sleep, Uh, There are so many people that are sleeping poorly and it's not an easy one to tease out. I think there's a lot of undiagnosed sleep apnea. Um, I think there's too much, too much alcohol and, and noise. I think our bedrooms are too hot. These memory foam mattresses, they're way too hot for people. Your core body temperature is supposed to cool down when you sleep. So sometimes your fancy mattresses are probably overrated and not doing much for your sleep. But I think the most underrated thing is... I'm going to go back to the same idea of deep, meaningful human connection. 
like really ask yourself, like how many relationships do you have in your life that are like this person, like no matter what, like if I picked up the phone, like they're there. I don't, I don't think, I don't think a lot of people could name five, you know, like even their own marriage is not that strong. And I think that is just like a really basic human thing that we, that we are not doing well. Amen. Couldn't agree more on that one. Um, I want to come back. You mentioned fasting as being overrated. I'm curious, is that more about the duration of how far people are taking it in terms of fasting for you know 20 hours or a day or so on? Or is it the promise of everything it can do? Or is it something else? Yeah. I mean, there, there's good, there's some good evidence for fasting. Like if you alternate day fasting can lower insulin, it can like, there, there are good things. And I do think for some people it helps them with compliance when it comes to like creating a caloric deficit. But like I said, it's a stressor on the body and it can be overdone. And I see these patients that come in and they're like, Oh, I'm doing a 72 hour fast, like once a week, or like, they're just so proud of themselves that they've fasted for 20 hours. And it's like, we still have to get nutrition. Like we, we still have these minimum requirements for protein. Like we still have. And so just like anything, it can be overdone. And so I think that it's probably just, it's being over, oversold right now. And also we just, we, we people, we, we people, we Americans, we, we also take things way too far. It's like, we read one thing. It's like, Oh, this thing has benefits. Let's just see how far I can take it. Uh, and that's another one too. You got to be mindful with age because as you, you could probably, you, you get away with a lot more in your twenties, but you start pushing forties, fifties, you do an extended fast, your point of maintaining lean muscle mass. It's like, wait, what, what's, what's going on here? starting to lose some, lose a little bit too much weight or maybe muscle mass. That's a possibility. And women are very susceptible, much more than their male counterparts. You know, your, your male counterpart can go through a lot more stressors, like doing cold plunges and all this fasting and all this. Women are, are more susceptible to these things because of these nutrient sensing pathways. Cause we're a reproductive creature much more than our male counterparts. We just are, are we have to be cautious with some of these things. And so in closing, obviously, if you're in Omaha, Nebraska, women should go see you. But I'm assuming most of our listeners aren't in Omaha. They're all over the world. And so if if someone's looking for an OB, what are the questions they should ask their OB to get a sense of, is this person going to be a fit for me? Yeah. So I only practice in Omaha. I don't do any telemedicine because I get a lot of questions, but I get DMs all the time. I'm in such and such Illinois. Do you know any good OBs in the area? And I have colleagues all over, you know, the United States, but they don't all practice like me. And, um, you know, so I would feel out, you know, if you're talking about like a pregnancy, for instance, you know, you know, what are their views about childbirth? Like what part does nutrition play in my pregnancy? You know, and if they can't give you that information, obviously you can always go find it yourself. But at the end of the day, you know, you want to trust that your provider you know, if you get into a scary situation that they have good skills, right? Because most of the time birth is very physiologic. And I tell patients this all the time, like, I'm just here if something goes wrong. Otherwise, I'm just going to sit here and watch this most beautiful, you know, event. But I I work with midwives too. And they always joke that I'm a doctor trapped in a midwife body. (laughs) They're like, you're like a midwife that accidentally went to medical school because I love natural childbirth. I just think it's like one of the most amazing things. Um, but you know, you want to, you want to have a good relationship with your provider. I think if you ask questions and you, and you're immediately gaslighted or off put by something, find a new provider because, you know, patients like, let's say they bring up, Hey, what do you think about a low carb diet in pregnancy? If they're completely shut down, 
And when it gets to a really hard conversation about something very important, you don't want that same thing to happen. You know, you want an open-minded provider that's like, oh my gosh, that's really interesting. I don't know. Let me, let me look at that. Let me read at that. Or let me look at the information that you're reading. Because right now with the internet, I mean, the availability our patients have to information that we have, I mean, they can read everything. And I think we're seeing more educated you know, customers, more, ed- more educated patients, and they're asking great questions. But I think as providers, we need to be more open-minded. But I would say if you're low risk, you know, you could see a midwife. Um, they're definitely like people like you who need high-risk doctors. Um, but just find somebody that you have a good open relationship with that you can communicate well with because you want them there if something goes bad. Agreed. Jamie, love your book, Hard to Kill. Um, love, love all the info you're putting out there on social media and Thank you so much. This is so great. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening.